Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our new series of exclusive interviews with business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspective on the changing world of work. My name is Karen Filfalan and I'm Changeboard's Deputy Editor. Today, I'm joined by David Bruin, partner at EY. To his colleagues at EY, David has always been the super reliable, personable high achiever, the sort of person you turn to when you need something solved in a hurry, a trait he has demonstrated time and again in his 20-year career with the organisation. However, David's professional successes masked feelings of detachment and depression that he has felt for most of his adult life, and that he has kept hidden from the outside world. But in 2010, things came to a head. A personal relationship David was in ended, and he was asked to take on a stressful project at work, the culmination of which left him, in his own words, unable to function. In the midst of a breakdown, David's secretary intervened, calling a cab that took him directly from work to the Priory Clinic, where he ultimately spent a month. In this podcast, David discusses the moment his secretary called in to say he needed help, how he came to terms with the disconnect between his intellectual capacity and his own emotions, and why mental health is ultimately about being honest with ourselves about our own feelings, desires, and needs. Thank you for joining us on this Changeboard podcast. It's a pleasure. Um, just to start, I thought it might be worth you kind of telling us in your own words um, the situation and background that kind of led you to having your breakdown uh, and, and what kind of prompted it. Sure. Um, well, it's a long story, which I'll try and condense uh, a little bit. So, having been um, in the profession since 1985, um, and having been, by any kind of empirical standard, reasonably successful during that period, um, I'd had various kind of small episodes of uh, what I see now and understand now as, as clinical depression. Uh, I didn't have the, the language to articulate that or understand that. And uh, life was good in that I was being successful. I was married. I had two children. And um, uh, professional life was successful. And so I kind of really just sh- shrugged that off and, and pushed on. Um, and then through um, a change of circumstances, I'd subsequently uh, got divorced. I was in a relationship. Um and the combination of that relationship breaking down and being asked to take on a very challenging role in the firm, um, that role I felt was well within my normal capability, and I think the firm would, would agree with that. But I found myself in a position where um, I just couldn't get started. I would be uh, in a situation where I'd look at the same piece of paper over and over. I knew really how to uh, handle the situation. It wasn't new. It was bigger and perhaps more complicated, but it was uh, a normal kind of change situation. But I couldn't find myself, um, and I couldn't find myself really. Um, and um, looking back on it now, it, w- it was a very scary moment because during my entire you know, academic career, school, university, and then professional career, there was something I always felt I could rely on was my, my ability to get things done and think clearly and uh, come up with a, a plan of action. And that was something that I, I felt was I could rely on. And during that moment, that had evaporated. I couldn't access that. So that was a very scary moment. So I, I think it's probably not overstating it to say that during that period, I just lost myself and I was not uh, effective. And that was becoming uh, clear to the firm. And then... Um, sort of out of the blue, the um, received a phone call from my secretary who um, 
works in our Leeds office, and at the time I was working here in London, who simply said, um, I've uh, I booked a taxi for you. The taxi's outside. I've made an appointment for you to see a doctor at the Priory. You need to get in the car. You need to go. You need to go now. Um, how she knew, um, who knows, but I got in the car and I went and um, I ended up um, staying in the hospital for the best part of a month. Um, and that was really how I came to be there. Since then, you know, our life has progressed positively, but that was the uh, the the event that precipitated my, my time in hospital. And, and in the interview with us in, in the Changeable magazine, you talk about that, and just now you talk about that moment of, of kind of paralysis that day where mm. you kind of sat down and you knew what needed to be done in the mm. task. You'd always been the person, the go-to person that could get things done in the organization, mm -hmm. but you just couldn't do it. There was like a paralysis. Yes, I couldn't... Um, I couldn't seem to get my head to work. It was a, it's a strange thing to explain, and it's a strange thing to try and remember now. And, but it was, you know, as an analogy, it's sort of like paralysis is the right thing. It's like, you know, um, if it was physical, you can't walk because your legs aren't working. I couldn't get my head to work in the way that uh, it needed to work. And, I, you know, I don't know what the medical explanation of that is, but it was certainly... Well, if I can't do that, I can't do anything. That's what it felt like, and that's why it was so um, scary at the time. Uh, and and what was the feeling like once the call came through from your secretary? Once you knew the car was was outside, was it a feeling of worry? Was it a feeling of relief? How how did that transpire for you? Yes, it was strange in that, uh, you know, looking back on it, I might have thought I'd, I'd be saying, you know, you've got to be joking, I don't need to do that. But at the time, it was sort of relief, resigned acceptance. Um, and I'm very relieved. I'm not sure what might have happened if that call hadn't um, come through because I'm, I'm not sure I would have had the... Uh, the capability to do that myself almost so certainly looking back on it, it uh, I'm hugely appreciative of it and at the time I can remember feeling relieved and acceptance that I needed to get some help and you know on that I'm interested in that you say that, that you'd had these kind of episodes of depression I think again in the interview you talk about feeling more like compression rather, yes. rather than being depressed necessarily I mean what kind of stopped you seeking help previously or did you not feel like that was something that you that you needed at that time well i did i did uh, seek help so during that period from uh, i guess firstly 99 through to 2010 so 10 or so years my career was progressing very well but during that period i did seek some professional help and i would go and see a therapist and i can remember um, quite often carol would ask me you know how are you feeling right now so she would observe some body language perhaps you say so david tell me how you're feeling and my response always was well i think um well, i think this and yeah. she would say i didn't ask you what you were thinking i asked you what you were feeling and at the time i had no real distinction uh, i didn't understand the difference which is one extraordinary thing but I don't think I really understood it I might have understood it in a sort of theoretical sense but I didn't understand it in a, an emotional sense the difference between how 
I felt and what I thought about things. And certainly look on, looking back on it now and through the work that I did in hospital, there was a certainly a sense that previously I would live my life, as it were, from the, um, the neck upwards. Mm, sure. So I would process everything in my head. And then, of course, when the event happened and my head didn't work anymore, that was kind of like game over sort of thing. Um, so this disconnect between head and heart, or however you might describe it, was significant. And looking back on it now, it was the way in which I connected with the world was much more through my head than than uh, my heart. And I think what was happening is that you know I wasn't getting what a fully functioning human being needed uh, because I wasn't engaging in the world as a complete fully functioning human being and is, is that something you'd always felt is it you know is it something you'd always felt throughout because you've been quite clear again that that work didn't cause these issues this was something that you felt you you kind of been dealing with your, your your entire life before that was that was that a feeling that you'd always had before yeah I think I'd always felt sort of slightly you know disconnected or different or or um, you know there are analogies that that people have used like you know seeing the world from behind mm, a plate sure. glass window um, not quite fully connecting with other people in the way that other people seem to connect with each other. So I never really, you know, I can remember that being the case when I was a teenager, but I never really thought that that was that significant other than that's the way I am and that's the way other people are. Um, as to whether work caused this event breakdown, call it what you will, no, in that, you know, that was a, that that was sort of 20 or 30 years coming and ironically sure. um you know it might have been better if i'd had that event uh you know at, at 28 or 32 than than when i did have it um so it was it's an error like accumulation of just not being fully connected to the world the those two events happening at the same time you know, is that anybody's responsibility? No. Did work create that? No. That was simply the time when my way of being in the world just wasn't going to work anymore. Sure. And and do you did you have to learn how to kind of listen to your emotions? You know, you talk about now, or again in the interview, you talk about now when you're stressed, you 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 can physically feel it yes. in in your chest. Yes. At the time pre the event was this not something that that you could feel or this was not something that, that you knew was happening to you or was it how, how did it kind of feel to you at it that didn't point? ever manifest itself in the same way uh, as it does now it was you know I wasn't open to it I would just you know push on um, ignore it not even be sensitized to it so sort of mind body problem or you know I'm much more aware of what my physical body is telling me and um, I take appropriate action. In fact, you know, I don't know, you know, unlike all of us, you know, I'm not remotely uh, an expert at this, so sure. I will have stressful situations and I don't always respond how, in hindsight, I would like to have done. But certainly, the vast majority of the time, I'm aware, much more aware of what my body is telling me, and I check into that and I listen to it and I um, act accordingly. And just going back to that, the time that you spent in the priory, 
I mean, again, you, you, you've said to me previously that, you know, some of the people that you saw there were kind of some, of, it was the sanest place you'd, you'd ever been in your life, really. Yes, and the experiences yes. and the That's right. kind of peer-to-peer sharing you got from other patients there was, yes. was almost the best thing about it and the most helpful yes. sort of thing. Yes. Yes, it was. And I, 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 you know, that's not to be disrespectful to the counsellors and the doctors there, but I think the value, and I'm sure they would, well, you could ask them, I'm sure they probably agree, the value comes from being in an environment where you will be in a group session and you will be listening to somebody and you will sort of see the the um, the construct they created there for themselves of you know a, a, a wonderful caring supportive mother who has developed this view that she is not any good at anything and as an external observer of that conversation you can see that this is sort of all made up somehow uh, because of the interactions that I'd had with her, were that she was none of the things she thought she thought she was, and she's a wonderful person. And you go around the room and you pick the nuggets of all of these, and then you realise that actually, well, that's just me. You know, I've just created this complete construct which is not real, um, and that's just it, the the penny drops very profoundly. Mm, when you can see it in somebody else and then you are then you turn the mirror on yourself and say okay well you know yeah i guess that's me too and that's the the moment of change or it was the moment of change for me um in what in what way well that you just make up sort of strange narratives born out of something you think is true which isn't true and uh, you know am i a decent person yes i am a decent person um do I care about other people? Yes. Am I capable and good at my job? Yes, I am. Do I make mistakes? Yes, like everybody else. But you get a better balanced view of reality rather sure. than this made-up notion of something that actually, you know, wherever it came from, it's just not real. And, and does it take? Do you have to kind of teach yourself that? Is that something you have to live, kind of work on day to day to try and change that kind of perspective of yourself? Or, or as you said, is it like the, the penny drops, something changed, and that made a profound difference in the way you view? Well, the world I think yeah, yourself? the penny. You know, uh, f- uh, speaking personally, and I think other people might have a, a different process for okay. this, but they're kind of penny dropped in a number of those group sessions. And then you work on it, you continue to, to work on it, you catch yourself, or I, I catch myself going into a place of, you know, you catastrophize things, mm. you predict the worst possible outcome on no basis whatsoever other than that's your process, you know, what could possibly go wrong? All these five things, well, I better worry about them. No, well, they're not happened yet. And so all that sort of stuff, which is, you know, sort of classic CBT stuff, but you... Um, end up listening to your your body. You listen to the thoughts that come into your head, and they're not you know you got no control over those. Um, and you, I try to choose not to engage with some of those thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't if you don't engage with them, they'll just drift from your left ear out out of your right ear. If you engage with them too much, they in my model you, they go down into your chest or your heart and you start getting stressed about them and these are just thoughts they're not they're not real they're just thoughts and i'm, I'm interested also um just to move on slightly uh, again it, when, when we spoke previously you talked about kind of the disconnect between how we define ourselves as people so mm. 
you know we we present one kind of side of ourselves perhaps professionally or to to certain people than we do to ourselves to them than how we feel personally why do you think people do this and if it causes so much stress and, and how can we kind of get out of that? how can we bring our whole selves either to the workplace or in our general lives well i think that you know be professional psychologist better place to answer that <laughs> sure. than I am but but I think we learn that from a very very early age we learn we watch our parents we work in uh, peer groups around school we know we learn very quickly that presenting in one particular way will get us what we need you know and we we like friends we like uh, affirmation uh, we like validation so we present in a way to get those payoffs and I think that's just normal human progression I think when it gets to be uh, unhelpful and dysfunctional um, as it did for me you, you are either consciously or subconsciously focused on getting these payoffs all the time you've worked out that the best thing to do is you know you, you work out quickly what your boss wants what your client wants what your staff want what your wife or husband wants and in that whole dynamic the question that never gets asked or answers is what do I want sure yeah. and then you begin to lose that because you're so invested in what does my client want what does my boss want and you get payoff from that you get the psychological payoff of validation and then of promotion and then of money and success but in, our, in, in all those conversations with yourself you're never asking what you want and then if you do too much of that as I suspect I probably did you you then don't even know what the answer to that question is because sure. you're so used to you know the process of school exams university exams professional exams promotion you're so invested in delivering against that you never ask that question well what do I want and what do I need to be happy? You're stuck on a treadmill, essentially. Yeah, you're almost addicted to this this kind of validation rather than really asking yourself what is fundamentally important to me and what do I need? And, and, and I think that's a kind of human existence problem. It may be exacerbated in certain industries and it may be exacerbated in the West and it may be mm. more challenging now, um, but I think it's been there you know, part of our condition really you say that and I, that was that was going to be one of my follow-up questions was i mean it, you know in, in the working environment we're talking about kind of globalization we're talking about kind of constant work emails we're talking about people being on all the time essentially <laughs> in a work environment do you do you think things are getting worse for, for kind of mental health from that point of view in, in in terms of people not having the space to think and to take the time to talk to themselves essentially about what they want I think that's possible. I mean, I think, you know, over it, it, uh, workplace stress and uh, ambition and challenge is not anything new. I think, mm. I do think that, and I, you know, everybody has said this before, I think, you know, the, the mobile phone, the on all the time um, culture is is very challenging, whether that's particularly work email, you know, you can have, and I saw a, a number of my colleagues will say, well, you know, I'm, I worry more if I don't check my email, so it's better for me to check my email, then I don't have to worry again. I, I think there's a higher order answer to that, is that 
if you're going away as we all will be in a few days or weeks for Christmas, there's the temptation in a in a slow moment in a dull Christmas movie to pick up your phone and check your email. I know, and I, I believe this will be true for anybody, one stressy email where something isn't quite right and you've just read that, that will take you to a place that will take three days of relaxation to get you back to where you were before you read that email. The problem with that is that do any of us really uh, relax and unwind? And I think what I've, you know, if I've learned anything, and I have learned a lot since being in hospital, is that it's not just your body that needs to re relax, it's your, your mind as well. And the dualism, there isn't any, they are connected, you know. If you have a thought, it impacts you here. Yes. And, and so the risk that we run is we, we are trying to continually control something that is not capable of being controlled. So the world just throws up quirks, things go wrong from time to time, clients get um, annoyed that we've not delivered rightly or wrongly. Occasionally we don't deliver because it's just the nature of it. If, we are, if you are trying to constantly keep all those balls in the air and not drop one of them, you simply, that's just simply impossible. Mm. And the solution is certainly not to remain online 24 seven, that's just going to increase the likelihood in my view of dropping the ball. Do, do you think as leaders we should be doing more to, 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 to kind of combat that? I mean, for instance, in France, banning work emails after a certain time, or do you just think it's the technology in the world's moved on? It's, it's not kind of possible to, to decide that. To, to stop things, but it has to come from with the self and a personal choice. Um, I think leaders and organisations have a responsibility to be thoughtful about how they behave and the modelling that they promote to their people. Okay. Um, I think banning, um, you know, after hours emails is is just a um, a clunky, unsophisticated approach. That I, I'm not sure that that works I think what is a more a principle around if you're a leader of a business and you regularly send emails on a seven o'clock on a Sunday because you as far as you're concerned you finish your Saturday you finish your Sunday and now you're kind of getting ready for Monday if you're sending them at seven o'clock on a Sunday I, I think we you know there's a question that as a yes. leader of people you want to ask whether that's um, helpful you might want to send them just because it's your choice when you want to work that's absolutely fine but you might just want to leave them in your outbox until you connect on Monday because the impact that we have as senior leaders if we are sending emails on, on Sunday night at 7 o'clock and our staff get in on Monday and they see when it was sent subconsciously or even consciously you can say well that, that's what it takes then that's what it's about is that what I should be doing um, so there does need to be much more of a co consistency and a connection between leadership rhetoric and leadership behavior and re reality and so you know I think um, 
we, we were able to serve our clients very successfully and very capably before uh, mobile phones existed. And I'm old enough to know that because uh, when I started, there was no such thing as a, a mobile <laughs> phone. Um, so going on holiday, in my view, means going on holiday. Given we're in a client industry, client service industry, and the world doesn't stop, and we, those of us that are partners, have both the benefits and the responsibility of those roles. So my view, and, and what, what I would encourage colleagues to do, is that you need to be contactable because occasionally situations occur that require your involvement. Sure. And so you need to be contactable. That's a landline, that can be a mobile phone, but you can delete the app on your mobile phone that gives you 24 seven access to your email. Uh, and I would encourage people to do that. I have encouraged people to do that. If something of significant happens on one of your clients whilst you're away, then you can always access email somehow. You can just put the app back on. Um, your secretary, your staff can contact you. So it's not about abrogating your responsibility because that goes with the territory. It's being about, it, it's taking care of yourself so you can then take care of your people and take care of your clients. If you remain, in my view, if you remain on call 24 seven, 52 weeks of the year, there has to be a question around, can you possibly be bringing your best to work every day for your people and your clients? And the answer is, you can't possibly be doing that. So it's in the interests of you as an individual, the organization you work for, the people that you lead, and the clients that you serve, to take time off and turn your damn phone off. It's, it's about role modeling, isn't it? But it's more than just role modeling for other people, it's role modeling for yourself. It's making sure you take that time for yourself as well. Um, I think that kind of quite neatly leads on to a question I had around Obviously, you talk quite frequently now in, in, in conferences and events and to people about the issues that you've faced and the events that you've been through, um, almost as a role model yourself. But why, why, you know, why do you put yourself through that if it's surely that creates a stressful situation for you as well? Or is, is it something that you feel that you want to talk to people about to raise awareness? Why, why do you decide to talk to people about these things? It's not remotely uh, stressful, okay. I can assure you of that. Um, I'm sure most people like talking about themselves and people <laughs> phone me up and ask me. I don't find it uh, stressful. Um, if I find it anything, I find it humbling and it's a kind of responsibility in that if it helps people, then it costs me nothing. Um, I confess, you know, I've only got one speech, so those people <laughs> that have turned up more than once will have heard it more than once. Um, it's a very good speech. <laughs> I only have that story. Um, if if that if that is helpful in any way on an individual level that people have been touched by it then that's wonderful i i'm proud of that if it's helpful on an organization level because it encourages uh firms organizations to seek to embrace some of the challenges that we're all under now then that's a good thing so it's just a good thing to do it's not it's not stressful, it's not, people quite often write to me after the uh, event or, or come speak to me after the event. Um, 
to say how brave I am. I, I don't, I'm not, it's not brave. I mean, am I, you know, I, I'm not exposing myself in terms of um, my story is well known already. It's well known in the organization that the organization here has been and nothing other than supportive about me. So there's no, I'm not being brave. All I'm doing is carving out an hour or so whenever anybody asks me to do this. Um, and I think that's just what, that's what most people would do. Other people might feel, find it difficult to get up in front of people to speak. I understand that. I'm, you know, I've, I've done that professionally for a long while, sure. so I don't find that. But most of the, you know, most of the people I've met during those kind of events all make a contribution. Most people that have, you know, fellow travelers, fellow sufferers, whatever we might call ourselves, are all making some sort of contribution. Um, in some way, um, in, a, in, a, in another way, I think it's it's a good part of my health uh, to, to to remind myself to talk about that process, to remind myself about how I stay healthy, and to go through the process of talking to people about that you know i'm hearing my words as well so that's a good reminder so it's not it's neither stressful it's not exposing it's not it's not brave and it's enjoyable brilliant and just what advice would you give to i know you, you're not a big fan of this question but what advice would you give to someone who's who's feeling things raised by this conversation who's listened to you talk and and thinks that they need some advice or they need some help what would your one piece of advice be um my one piece of advice if you crunch it down to one would be talk to somebody now that that you've got to make the decision about whether that's a close friend whether that's a husband a wife a work colleague uh, somebody in the medical profession, a therapist. Uh, most large organizations have a support structure, so you could take advantage of that. I, I can't say whether one of those is better than any of the others. It depends where the individual is at the time and how comfortable they are with it. But certainly, that's what I do now. So if I find myself in a position where you know, I'm drifting in, in an unhealthy direction, I will speak to somebody um, and it won't be, you know, I'll just pick up the phone and have a chat. And uh, I might even not talk about how I feel. It's just the act of having a conversation with another human being is very helpful to me. The previous version of me would not do that. Okay. Would sit and wallow and disappear and, and, and withdraw. So my one, my point of encouragement is to um, have a conversation and share with another person how you are feeling and trust that that's a good thing to do david thank you for your time that's really Pleasure. helpful thank you thank you you can learn more about david's story in the latest issue of changeboard magazine to subscribe or find out more visit www.changeboard.com or follow us on twitter with the handle at changeboard for more stories like this why not join us at our annual future talent conference on the 22nd of march at the royal geographical society where Alistair Campbell will discuss mental health, Seleni Henry will examine true diversity in the workplace, and 750 leaders will explore the future of work. Book now at ftconference.changeboard.com. Mm -hmm.